Research UK Cambridge Centre podcast. In this integrated cancer medicine research in focus series, I talk to various ICM members about their research and how it is supported by the vision of the Mark Foundation Institute for Integrated Cancer Medicine. MFICM research uses cutting edge analytics to maximise the use of diverse high volume data sets and by capturing cancer heterogeneity in time and space in patients receiving active treatment. Integrated Cancer Medicine aims to transform the way the world treats cancer by affecting patients along their treatment pathway and ultimately accelerate cures. So today I have with me Dr. Ju Ern Ang and patient Melanie Newman to talk about the translation of ovarian cancer research into the clinic and how it has positively affected Melanie's treatment in real time and what the impact and outcome has been. Dr. Ju Ern Ang is a consultant medical oncologist within the Cambridge University Health Partners. Melanie Newman was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in October 2018 and was treated by Dr. Ang as part of the OVO4 translational study. So to start with, Joanne, please could you briefly outline the disease for us? So thank you for um, inviting me to this program. So briefly, high-grade serous ovarian cancer with the high-grade serous histological subtype constitutes approximately about three quarters of epithelial ovarian cancer with about 90% of patients with stage three to four disease having the high-grade uh, serous subtype. And at first diagnosis, patients are typically treated with either primary debulking surgery, followed by adjuvant systemic therapy, or they would receive um, systemic therapy, followed by interval debulking surgery, if they're deemed operable. Overall, about 70% of patients with advanced disease, unfortunately, as the broad statistics go, relapse within three years, with an average progression-free survival from the start of first-line systemic therapy between 10 to 18 months. And at relapse, further treatment options are considered uh, depending on the location and the extent of disease, as well as the interval, the time interval from the last systemic treatment. Now, there is a range of clinical outcomes in patients with high-grade serious ovarian cancer. I thought um, it's worth just pointing out, you know, the few and limited tools to accurately subclassify and personalize treatment approaches for these heterogeneous disease. That would be great because my next question would be in terms of treatment, can you tell us what challenges this type of cancer presents? A proportion of patients would have had symptoms for some time, but uh, some of them would undergo a circuitous workup to get to us. I think highlighting a diagnostic challenge in the community. And despite the high proportion of responses to systemic treatment, a number of patients, unfortunately, will still uh, suffer a relapse. And I think a, a real challenge is the usually non-curability of disease at relapse based on existing treatment paradigm. And another is the lack of more effective treatments you know, in the relapse setting, especially with platinum resistance or refractoriness. The typically non-actionable molecular aberrations on somatic testing is another challenge. I think it's uh, worth pointing out that the ovarian program is focusing on an integrative clinical, molecular, and imaging approach to help us better understand ovarian cancer, particularly high-grade ovarian cancer, and aim to improve clinical outcomes by developing better tools 
to minimize the administration of non-effective treatments, as well as to facilitate the integration of novel and hopefully better treatment approaches. You use the term in there, somatic testing, and I, I'm not sure that I or the listeners will understand what that means. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about that, please? Right. So somatic testing is really in contrast to germline testing. Somatic testing basically means um, getting additional molecular information on the tumour as opposed to non-tumoral samples. So germline is the DNA that we were born with and the somatic DNA is that of the tumour. Is that correct? Great. Thank you. Joanne, could you just tell me what a typical day looks like for you, just to give our listeners a bit of context about your work? Um, So I'm employed by the NHS with the ovarian programme, making sessional contribution to my job plan. And really, I think uh, no two days are the same. Uh, There really isn't a typical day. I think my days are a combination of many things. And I think these range really from um, strategy, um, planning ahead to day-to-day duties, uh, spanning clinical work at the patient management and departmental sort of service delivery levels, to clinical research from resolving data queries, getting trials approved, set up, all the way to researching and planning new studies. I also spend time uh, with oncology trainees in audit as well as research projects. So you have a really varied life. (laughs) Uh, Quite. (laughs) Great. And if I could bring Melanie in. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Could you tell me when you were diagnosed and what treatment you were given at the start of your journey? Well, thanks for inviting me today. Um, Appreciate that. So, yes, the diagnosis came on the 5th of October 2018, the day before my niece's wedding. So (laughs) quite a challenging time, but we, we move on. Prior to that, once I first took myself to the doctor, once I was having the pelvic pain, which got me to the doctor, the GP brilliantly did a CA125 blood test straight away and no time was lost at all, fast-track through to Addenbrooke's, and I had numerous scans, uh, ultrasound, MRIs, various scans to get me to the point of having a clear diagnosis, which showed that it had metastasized, so I had the right pelvic mass, it was in my lymph nodes, and there was a node on my pancreas, so yeah, massive shock, because I was fit and well, to all intents and purposes, on reflection, the symptoms I experienced, I put down to menopause. I thought, oh, dismissed them. But thankfully, the pelvic pain came very suddenly and significantly, which took me to the GP. So once I had my diagnosis in October, I then had biopsy, endoscopy, because everything was about finding the primary source of the cancer. And that was confirmed as ovarian. And I just feel very fortunate. I was on my birthday, 6th of November 2018. I had a treatment plan, best present ever, and started with the chemotherapy. And I also took part in a trial there with the bevacizumab, additional chemotherapy. So really strong chance of getting some great results. And I did, I responded so well to to the chemo. And I did another study which involved Um, drinking pineapple juice which was an MRI scan which enhanced the images for the researchers which confirmed that the chemo had well the node on my pancreas was now necrotic tissue so I was in a good place to go forward for the surgery thankfully I had so much to be thankful for and extensive surgery which has been massively successful and 
I carried on with the chemotherapy and that concluded. So I had a few months where I was free of chemo, but then my CO125 started creeping up and the cancer was returning. So quite quickly, July 2020, it was showing in some nodes. But again, no time is lost. And, and I was well prepared by Dr. Brenton, who sort of explained what would happen next. So I had more chemo. And then brilliantly, when that was finished, I was in a good position to start with this trial. And yeah, I just remember thinking trial studies, Yes, uh, <laughs> if they're being offered to me, I'm very fortunate to be in that position and I'll accept. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, absolutely. And can I just, I just want to unpick a couple of things that you said in case our listeners don't understand. CA125, Joanne, what is that measuring and why is that important in the treatment and diagnosis of ovarian cancer? CA125 has been used um, as a diagnostic as well as a prognostic a serum biomarker. So it's a biomarker whose levels you can measure in the blood. And in a proportion of patients um, with relapse disease, one finds an increasing uh, level of this biomarker. And it basically serves as a guide as to potentially tumour kinetics, potentially tumour volume. Although this parameter on its own really is to be interpreted in the context also of patient symptomatology as well as imaging so it is useful in terms of follow-up, particularly patients, you know, with very elevated markers when they first present to us. But I always exercise caution in just looking at this particular parameter on its own. Okay, thank you. Melanie, perhaps I can ask you, how did starting treatment impact your day-to-day life and that of your family? Initially, it was huge because we were suddenly, every three weeks, my husband and I going to Addenbrooke's for the for the chemo and it was a full day but you very soon get into this is this is our life now and your new normal as it were yes yeah and we have two daughters and they were like right mum well you're going to get through this immensely positive and so we had a positivity playlist that they devised all those happy endorphins would get the energy rushing before appointments and think right come on yes we'll get into this I was off sick from work at the time so I didn't have that anxiety work were amazing and I think once I learned how my body responded to the chemotherapy I knew which week I was going to be wiped out basically and yeah I just started to get into a routine I can't imagine what it's like for people who don't have a family to support them because I didn't feel like cooking, but eating clearly is so important. Eating the right food is important and having positive people around you is so important at that time. Yeah, I was in a very fortunate, I still am in a very fortunate position. Yeah. That's good to hear. And what did enrolling on the OVO4 trial entail? Um, And how did it change your treatment? It sounded like it was a progression on from your first part of the treatment. So can you just explain what it meant to be on that translational study? I'm grateful for the regular contact with Addenbrooke's, the monthly review and ongoing checks that happen. So I think that's a huge benefit to anybody taking part in a trial, that you are so closely monitored, you have the reassurance 
that your body is responding well. You've got more freedom with this type of medication. And I think just having that close relationship with the hospital, I think, is worth so much. And it gives you the reassurances that you need. Because this cancer does return, and for me it did return, and who knows what the future holds, but being so closely monitored is a huge plus. Of course, gives you peace of mind. Yeah. Sure. And Joanne, in terms of standard of care, is there a standard of care for ovarian cancer? And, and what does the OVO4 translational study give on top of that standard of care? Standard of care in terms of first-line treatment really uh, comprises, broadly speaking, three options. I think with either carboplatin on its own, the combination of carboplatin and paclitaxel, and the third option um, being the addition of bevacizumab to the chemotherapy doublet. So that's essentially standard of care options. Those are three different types of chemotherapy you're talking about? Yeah, um, three different regimens. Got um, it. Sort of variations on a theme, really, um, with a backbone of chemotherapy being carboplatin, the platinum agent. And in terms of OVO4, you know, it's a, essentially a non-interventional um, study in that it doesn't involve um, the administration of a drug agent. Um, you know, it doesn't ask questions uh, directly about different ways of administering uh, treatments. And it's essentially a biomarker study. It's a multimodality biomarker study um, that significant number of our patients take part in. It involves a reasonably extensive studying of um, various biomarker modalities, um, including imaging, including uh, genomic, um, as well as potentially protein-based biomarker studies. So you're really talking about, in terms of data integration, the different types of data sets that you analyse and combine, and how does the result of integrating that data inform the decision for the best treatment for Melanie? Really, I think all translational data currently collected and analysed in the study um, are anonymized, you know, and they're not typically linked directly to any patient identifiable data. And I think in Melanie's case, all options were very carefully considered on each point of a cancer journey, including participation, um, not in just one, but actually two clinical trials of investigational approaches um, and agents, which were the approaches we went for at the appropriate time point. And in terms of the biomarkers that were being studied in the program, and as I've mentioned before, these spans imaging genes um, as well as proteins, um, both in tumour as well as in blood samples, these new biomarkers that's being studied in the context of OVO4 and firstly in the context of established standard of care treatments will help generate potential biomarker candidates you know, that we will pursue when designing studies, both um, in treatment naive as well as relapse disease. And really to say you know, that we would want all of these data to feed into future clinical trial designs and um, basically the principles of minimizing exposure okay, to non-efficacious treatment and matching sort of mechanisms of action of therapies with the relevant biology of disease will hopefully help guide um, future study design. You know, and I think overall, the Cambridge team is really very well placed to address these questions. So watch the space. 
That's great. And I, I was going to ask you how the work would inform the way you would design a clinical trial in the future, but you, you just answered that really. But can you tell me, are there further clinical trials in the pipeline that you see coming to fruition soon? Uh, yes, we are um, pursuing potentially the approach of um, using targeted therapeutics in the neoadjuvant treatment of advanced ovarian cancer. Um, and I think in the first instance, um, we are keen to be hopefully utilizing medicines like PARP inhibitors um, to treat patients with um, BRCA uh, mutations and possibly patients also with particular um, molecular aberrations, you know, such as homologous recombination uh, deficiency. But I think this is really just the first step. We um, feel um, reasonably strongly that um, the neoadjuvant space is the therapeutic area in which to invest our time um, really to optimise uh, outcome in the longer term. Sure, neoadjuvant being that time between diagnosis and surgery, or how do you define that area? Oh, yes. Um, so neoadjuvant treatments are really treatments uh, that we use to try to uh, render disease more operable. That makes sense. Thank you. Melanie, how do you feel about your participation in the OVO4 clinical trial? For example, do you remember how you felt when you were first approached about taking part in clinical research? And what would your advice be to other people who were considering taking part in a clinical trial? I remember sort of a slight apprehension because you, you hear the word trial and you question, is it for me? But being so much further on now in the journey, I wouldn't hesitate to say yes to any trial or study that's offered because it is always offered with the individual's best interests. And I've had some amazing outcomes from the studies and trials that I've done. I think if you offered it, you, you're very fortunate to have that opportunity. And I just would accept anything that's offered now. I mean, I think it's done with the, um, the purpose of extending life and improving life for me and hopefully it'd be beneficial for women of the future so yeah I would just encourage anybody to take up the opportunity absolutely that's great and can you tell us what's been the biggest impact and the biggest effect or the biggest step forward in your treatment as taking part of this trial gosh or if there are several, please. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't wish to reflect on where I might be had I not taken part in um, different trials and studies, because I just think I could be in a very different situation, particularly thinking about that study, which actually enabled me to go forward for the surgery. If I'd had to go down a different path, then who knows what the prognosis would be. At the moment, I'm encouraged that my prognosis is good. And I will hold on to any strand of positivity. So I think with, with the offer of a trial comes hope. And for me, that just is, is worth so much. Having the support of the team, and, it, and it's everybody at Adam Brooks and involved in the research, that is so valuable to me as the individual, to, the, to a group of ladies who are, we meet each week. We're incredibly fortunate to have each other and to have this opportunity really it's the whole picture of care really isn't it yeah it is yes and I just wondered if we could pick up on the pineapple juice test I'm quite intrigued what 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 did that mean and what what was that for <laughs> so involved it was an MRI that involved drinking a litre of pineapple juice ahead of the scan the imaging 
and the enzymes in the pineapple, I believe, enhance the images for diagnosis. And so it was able to show that the, the node of my pancreas had responded correctly and the tissue was dead tissue. So it took me from a place where the surgery could have been quite complex and really questionable whether surgery was the right route to knowing that surgery was the, the ovarian, well, the, it's debulking surgery. So it, it focused on that rather than needing pancreatic surgery as well. So, so, so it really personalised your treatments, yeah. Mm, yes, hugely. And Duane, if I could just ask you, is the pineapple juice test a standard of care or is that something unique to Melanie's particular disease or a particular situation or circumstances? It's definitely not standard of care imaging, especially with the very innovative approaches typically taken by the team here. They're always bending over backwards to try to resolve important clinical questions, even out of the context of clinical trials which is something that I've seen plenty of evidence for working in Edinburgh over the past, coming up to three years now since I've started. And I guess amazing to have that breadth of resource available within one place in order that Melanie was able to have that specialised treatment or that specialised radiology input into her treatment. Oh, quite, absolutely. Melanie, perhaps I could ask about the current treatment that you're on right now after the initial treatment and then the extra translational study. What treatment are you on right this minute? So since March 2021, I've been taking two different types of PARP inhibitors. Again, when it was offered, I was everything crossed and hoping that I would be eligible to take have the two medications because of the two strands to this trial. Unfortunately, I'm on both drugs, the Olaparib and Sidiranib. And so I take those morning and evening and I come to clinic every month to be monitored and reviewed. And touch words, so far everything's responding in the way I would wish it to respond. And I hope Dr. Joanne feels the same. <laughs> Is this a new type of treatment or a new study that you're doing currently? So really, uh, just very briefly, uh, Melanie is taking part um, in a clinical trial, and it's called ICON-9. It's an international uh, multi-center study, and it's a randomized uh, clinical trial. Patients are randomized, I think, one-to-one -one, um, between Olaparib and the combination of Olaparib-Sederinib in the platinum-sensitive maintenance setting following first relapse. And the Olaparib, as you know, is a PARP medicine, and uh, sodarinib is an anti-angiogenic tyrosine kinase inhibitor. The, the key question that this trial is trying to answer is whether or not it extends um, progression-free survival. And that's really interesting because I've heard these drugs spoken of in context of the wire clinical trial for renal cancer, but that would be in the neoadjuvant setting. So these are now in a setting that is post-surgery, is that correct, but after relapse? We are looking at relapse disease without the institution of surgery, but really as, if you like, um, a maintenance, non-chemotherapy or chemotherapy-sparing treatment following a fixed course of chemotherapy, whether or not the um, use of potentially uh, less toxic treatments could help keep the disease under control for longer. That makes sense. Thank you for the explanation.
Chiwen, perhaps if I can just throw a final question out to you. Where do you see clinical trials on ovarian cancer treatment taking us in the next five to 10 years? I think a more integrated approach in the management of patients, really, hopefully incorporating baseline as well as longitudinal imaging, genomic and protein-based biomarkers. In my view, cytotoxic chemotherapy will remain the mainstay of treatment in the medium term, but we will hopefully improve the way these agents are used by the application of validated predictive biomarkers. I think important also to say that concurrently, there are a number of novel drug treatments that target ovarian cancer in a different way from conventional treatments, as well as affecting cell kill in new ways from before. And these drugs show quite a lot of promise in early phase trials. And I'm fairly optimistic that these agents will inform the next uh, generation of late phase clinical trials. Thank you. And Melanie, the last word to you. I guess the final question is, how are you today? And what are your plans for the future? Oh, thank you. I feel amazing today. I feel I'm back to full health. I have so much energy. Yes, it's, it's starting to dawn on me that this is my health. This is, this is life now. Get out there and live it and do all the things that I want to do feel blessed that I am able to do them because I feel so fortunate that for me every, everything came together so so perfectly and with such a great outcome and I have so much thanks and appreciation to everybody in the, the teams that have got me to this point so thank you Dr Joan <laughs> and your colleagues everybody it's been an amazing experience not one that I would wish on anybody but I think I've been very fortunate at each stage to have had the treatment available to me so for any anybody else I mean I mean the other thing I just love my scar Mr Holder did my surgery and I love my scar because my scar is life and I just think anybody just take up the opportunity if offered to you. Thank you so much it's so great that there's a happy ending. <laughs> So it just remains for me to say thank you so much to both of you for taking part in this podcast with me today. It's been so interesting to talk to both of you. So thank you very much. Thank you for the chance. If you want to find out more about the work of the Mark Foundation Institute for Integrated Cancer Medicine, please visit our website at www.integratedcancermedicine.org where you can find details of the ICM vision all the current research, clinical trials, resources, publications and team information. You can keep up to date with our latest news and events and you can also sign up for our newsletter. If you would like more information about the work of the CRUK Cambridge Centre, please go to www.crukcambridgecentre.org.uk or you can connect with us on Twitter using our handle at CRUK Cam Centre. Thanks for listening and do join us again soon.